If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. If we were to look at characteristics that we enjoy or appreciate in other people, one of the greatest ones I would argue would matter to us most probably would be consistency. Consistency in the right things, of course, because many people are consistent in the wrong things, are they not? How many of us are consistent in not doing what God wants us to do? How many of us are consistent in getting upset too easily? How many of us are consistent to faithfully follow God and continue to do what he's asked us to do, even when it's difficult in the world around us? Today we're going to be looking at two things specifically that Paul deals with here in Acts chapter 21. Number one, the reported controversy, verses, 20, uh, verses 15 through 21. And number two, the balanced response of the elders, verses 22 through 25. So number one, the reported controversy, and number two, the balanced response. Let's start with number one, reported controversy, verses 15 through 21. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So what we see here is Paul continues his journey to Jerusalem, and he stays at Nason's house, who is more than likely a Hellenistic Jew, which would be someone that would speak Greek and probably be more involved with that culture and adapting to that culture. He apparently became a disciple of Jesus Christ early on and was willing to entertain both Jewish and Gentile believers at any time. He was at the, this location was actually at the halfway point between Caesarea and Jerusalem, which was almost the perfect pit stop, if you will, for Paul. Paul arrives in Jerusalem and receives a very warm welcome. They're absolutely thrilled. The elders are absolutely thrilled to see him there. It's a great reunion. But the following day, it's time to get on with business. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. You meet somebody, oh, it's so wonderful, I haven't seen you in a while. All right, let's talk numbers, right? Those of us that are in business, we know that's how it works. It's good to see you, I haven't seen you in a while. All right, time to talk business. You see, Paul meets with the elders, particularly James, who's in charge, if you will. He's considered the elder of this the leader of this Jerusalem church, although it's still under the paradigm of the plurality of elders. It's not specified here whether or not um, the monetary gift that Paul brought was received, but it's more than likely the case. The elders in Jerusalem are thrilled to have heard of the Gentiles that have been reached by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But there's a slight problem. 
Because many Jewish people had also come to saving faith and came under the impression that Paul was now going against Jewish customs entirely. He was no longer pushing for circumcision, if you will, or celebrating the feasts. At least that's what they were believing. They reported these things to the elders. And as any good leadership in a church ought to do, they wanted to speak to Paul to get a better understanding. In other words, we've been told, Paul, that such and such is going on. Is this true? Are you really no longer practicing these things as a Jew? Are you really discouraging the Jewish people to stop circumcising their children? Well, of course, none of those things were true. They were an accusation by Judaizers who attempted to make even Gentiles conform to their way of thinking, which would be to become Jewish ultimately in the truest sense. Obviously, Paul never stated those things that, they're being, that he's being accused of. He never said that they should be banned or no longer practiced, but that they were not a qualifier for justification by faith alone. They were to be justified by faith alone before God as we have a finished work in Christ that's done on all of our behalf. He's the one that fulfilled the law perfectly, standing as our representative. That's what Paul's declaring. And he never changed on that. The Judaizers continue to have an influence in the early church, pushing the standard of the Mosaic law as a requirement for salvation. In fact, faith in Christ was not enough, according to them. It's not enough to trust that Jesus is the Messiah. You have to do these practices as a Jew in order to prove that you've really trusted in Christ. These men were constantly representing Paul's ministry. And they argued that Paul was now preaching an inconsistent gospel. This is such a tension, church, that even today this goes on. Many Christians swing from license to law in the representation of the Christian experience. When thinking through what faith is to the Jewish mind, one must think not just mental assent, but really an action, a doing. This is why the tension still exists for Jewish people today. When they meet Christians that say they believe the Word of God and they don't do anything that Scripture says. That's what makes it very difficult for Jewish people to take the Christian faith seriously. To them, faith meant loyalty. If I trust, if I believe, if I have faith, that means I'm loyal. Is that true of you and me? When we say we trust Christ, are we loyal to Him? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. You see, to us... Faith is just a simple belief, something that I'm thinking of. And many times it doesn't have feet. It doesn't show up in actions of loyalty. If we're to consider the Jewish mindset, they would understand faith in terms of faithfulness, loyalty, surrender. Which is why when a Jewish person converted to Christ, they were pledging their allegiance to Christ. And in a sense, no longer pledging allegiance to Moses and the Mosaic Law. You see, back in Jerusalem, this creates a bit of a dilemma for the elders. Because they're trying to reach the Jewish population. They're trying to understand where Paul is coming from, but also do not want to hinder their ministry to the Jews. 
Listen to what one commentator says on this. The Jerusalem elders were in somewhat of a bind. On the one hand, they had supported Paul's witness to the Gentiles at the Jerusalem conference. Now they found Paul a persona non grata and his mission discredited, not only among the Jewish populace, which they were seeking to reach, but also among their more recent converts. They did not want to reject Paul. Indeed, they praised God for his successes. Still, they had their own mission to the Jews that God had called them to to consider. And for that, Paul was a distinct liability. You see, you have to understand, these elders in Jerusalem were in a tight spot. They had been reaching the Jewish community only to have the Judaizers have such an influence with new believers that they no longer believed that Paul was preaching the gospel faithfully. Which is why they understood that they needed to have a balanced response. Number two, the balanced response. Verses 22 through 25. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. You see, the elders' goal was to make it clear to the Jewish believers that Paul was not throwing away his Jewish heritage. He was, that he was no longer practicing, if you will, as the Jews did. He was still a faithful Jew, but made sure that Messiah was supreme. Though Paul was not practicing Judaism, he had not abandoned all practices himself. In fact, he took a Nazarite vow earlier, as we've read in the book of Acts. We also see that it was beneficial for the ministry to have Timothy who actually had a Jewish mother to be circumcised, which she wasn't at that time. And Paul went ahead and circumcised him to make sure that ministry was able to reach the Jewish community. Paul didn't want any hindrance to the gospel message in the synagogues. You see, these four men who were more than likely to come under the Nazarite vow were recommended to Paul to actually pay for the sacrifice on their behalf in aligning to the service before God. This would essentially illustrate to those who opposed Paul that he was still serious about his commitment as a Jew and to God. Because this was voluntary, this wasn't required. Now, to recap what the Nazarite vow consisted, these are a few of the facts regarding the Nazarite vow if you read through Scripture. First of all, it was a voluntary separation to God. Nobody was forced to do this. I would say the only exception would probably be Samson, because that was just implied right from the beginning that he was going to be a Nazarite. He was going to take the Nazarite vow. It was open to both men and women. It was for a specified period of time, although some had a lifelong commitment, right? Like Samson and also John the Baptist. There were also, number four, particular restrictions. For example, in Numbers, no grape juice, wine, no cutting of hair. There are particular restrictions with this Nazarite vow. And number five, a sacrifice was offered 
upon completion of the vow. Once the vow was completed, a sacrifice was offered. Now, although we're not commanded as Gentiles to do this, there's much to pause and think through, church. There's pause for us to realize that we need times in our lives to separate from other things to dedicate ourselves to God. It's not enough to stop doing what hurts your walk with God, church. Now, it's not enough to just say, you know what, I'm too much on Facebook, I'm watching too many movies, I'm, you know, if you're a video game person, I'm just into video games all the time, I need to stop doing that, it's pulling me away from my walk with God. It's important to realize the need to, for separation from those things in order to dedicate time to God. You see, the problem with a lot of Christians is they swap their idols. We pick one idol, we swap it with another one, we think we're doing better. I shouldn't watch so much television, so instead I'll be on Facebook all day. Is that a better solution? Of course not. As a young person, I'm getting tempted online, so I should just play video games. These are recommendations I've actually had in my life. These are all things that are advised by good, well-meaning Christians to a brother or sister who's struggling without telling them that you need to spend more time consistently in prayer and scripture, ultimately. It's the equivalent of a married Christian couple going through a hard time and being told separation's good for them, but not applying it biblically. Well, it's a good thing because Scripture advises that. When Scripture has something very specific in those circumstances. Listen to how the ESV puts it in 1 Corinthians 7.15. This is to a couple that's struggling. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, is Scripture fine with separation if you're having problems in your marriage? Yes. What are you supposed to do while you're separated? Devote yourself to prayer. There are many people that have offered advice in this area that have not given biblical solid advice. Oh, it's good for you to separate. You need to be able to figure things out. And they don't tell them to, to really pray through all this, to be in the Word, to really hear from God. How many Christians, when they're trying to work things out, separate and make it a priority to be in prayer and reading of Scripture? How many are simply just trying to better themselves without the Word of God? It's an empty cause. Let's admit it, church. Psychology has a greater influence on many in the church today than God's Word does. That's why most Christian couples' view of marital bliss comes from movies, not from the Word of God. Let's remind ourselves those are actors. And most of those things are not reality. Their view of marital bliss comes from the world, whereas loving like Christ and submitting like the bride doesn't register on our radar. Being your true self is of utmost importance to many in the church today. Listen, your true self, it's apart from the Word of God, is a very dangerous place to live. Your true self is self-destructive. Your greatest enemy is your flesh. 
I know most people like to blame the devil. That's usually further down the line. You don't really even need him to tempt you. You have a sin nature that fights against the spirit. Your flesh fights against the spirit. It wars. It's a very good thing for us to think through in our sanctification, to separate from those things that distract us from God. How much we neglect to dedicate to God of our time, our resources, and our passions. It's good to step back and just reevaluate that. And that means actually putting those other things away so we can dedicate more time to God. What do I mean by that practically? Well, parents, maybe sometimes for us, instead of watching that movie, maybe we stop and discuss the Word of God. If it's not a practice already, maybe we make it, make it a practice. The suggestion by the elders in Jerusalem was in convincing the Jewish believers that Paul had not cast off his Jewish heritage, and he found the custom still important to follow, including purifying of oneself and dedication to God. Paul could still hold to justification by faith alone, but while still maintaining his Jewish roots. One of the things that you have to understand, church, when a Messianic Jew comes to saving faith, when they've come to Christ, we are not to eliminate their celebration feasts. That is not the right move for us as Gentiles. Because all of those things are still a reminder to them of what Messiah has done for them. In fact, there's a greater reminder in that than in Christmas for us as Westerners. You see, in a sense, it would declare a cleansing and alignment to the law and customs of the Jewish people while at the same time maintaining that those things do not save. Now, some commentators actually believe that this was a big mistake for Paul to make. I tend to disagree because in furtherance of the gospel message, that was always Paul's heartbeat. Well, how do we know that? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. Here's what it says. And though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do this to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it to, into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 
You see, in the greater context of this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about his gospel-centered perspective. His focus is how he is willing to do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. The idea of running the race is tied into his passion for the gospel itself. In fact, I think we've done a disservice in this text by separating that. I've, I've read the bottom portion separately from the portion on top and in a real sense missed the whole point of what Paul's going after in running this race, which is that I'm gospel-centered, I'm gospel-focused, I'm out to reach people with the gospel because that's the race that God has set for me. Paul is saying that this is something that takes effort on my part. Listen, believer, you have no part in your salvation. The only part you play is believing the finished work of Christ. In your sanctification, you have a big part to play. You are to constantly fight sin. You are constantly to fight the good fight of faith. As Paul tells Timothy, to lay hold on eternal life. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians, they come into the church, they get baptized, and it's like, oh, I'm done. I don't need to worry about anything. Completely the wrong view of Scripture. It takes real work to run in such a way that you reach people with the gospel different than you are. Church, it takes real work to reach people around us. It takes effort. This isn't a let go and let God proposition. Paul adjusted in whatever way he could to reach people with the gospel without compromising in sin. Now, contextualization is a word that many don't often use, and I don't really like some of the jargon behind it at times. But it fits here. What do we mean by this? We mean applying and explaining the gospel message in regard to a cultural context. There are two extremes when it comes to contextualization. The first one is that none should be applied in any way, meaning everything in Western thought is correct, every other thought is incorrect, and everybody should become American type of Christians. Is that what Scripture pushes? Well, we have a Jewish Messiah, so I don't think that would be the first starting point on that. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are used to doing things a certain way that they've never really looked at how other cultures view the Christian faith. Which is why the default for a lot of us that grew up with Awana is the Romans road, right? Like that's God's predisposed plan, that's how you do it. Unfortunately, the problem with that is when you read the book of Acts and you read throughout the scripture, that's not always the application, that's not the way it's presented. Is it helpful? Yes. Is that the requirement? No. There are others, though, that over-contextualize. What do I mean by that? They dismiss outright truth that Scripture presents in attempt to marry the false religion with Christianity that they're trying to reach. Their arguments are, are as such, and I know churches like this, and you'd be surprised to read these statements on their website. The fact that they identify with Christ is blasphemy. Churches that believe that all religions are the same. Your truth is my truth. 
Jesus can be added to all of your cultural beliefs. You don't need to change anything. Which is why you see the progressive movement in America shift from a lot of what Scripture clearly reveals. And what makes you wonder sometimes is, what Bible are they reading? You see, it's a very hard balance to find, and unfortunately, too many in the church swing to extremes on this without the proper balance that Paul himself exemplified. You see, one will be out of balance if they're not making the Word of God a priority. Church, you will not be able to reach people around you with the gospel if you're not making this the first priority. And if you're trying to reach them with the gospel, you are going to abound in inconsistencies. You see, Paul balanced this out well because he was so familiar with Scripture first and culture second. Unfortunately, we've become more familiar with culture first and try to bring the Scripture later. How could I word this so they like me more? That's where a lot of us start with. Rather than being in the Word consistently, faithfully, understanding a lot of the things that Scripture lays out for us, and then trying to see what it is that God wants us to say to others. You see, Paul made sure that Scripture he was most familiar with, and from that, then he would launch into understanding other cultural contexts. What I am not saying, church, and I want to make sure I'm clear on this, what I'm not saying is that you are oblivious to culture. If a person comes in here from a completely different religious background, you should know enough to be able to see the differences and distinguish certain things and be able to possibly even converse with them in their religious beliefs. In fact, with the Jews, Paul adjusted to their practices where it benefited in reaching them with the gospel. He circumcised Timothy, who had a Jewish background. He took the Nazarite vow himself in commitment before God. And he also, right here in this text, was going to offer a sacrifice on behalf of others who vowed before God. All of this was for one thing only, reaching Jewish people for the gospel. This wasn't to make a name for Paul. This wasn't so he would be a guest, featured speak, you know, a guest speaker at a conference later on. This was for the gospel. To the Gentiles, Paul respected the cultural beliefs and acknowledged their place in society when he talked in Mars Hill, while steering the conversation to the one true God and Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't going out of his way to just blast all the idolatry that he saw all around him. I think we can learn from this church. Sometimes it's easy just to blast at everybody we disagree with. Maybe the testimony would go a whole lot better if we didn't start with just attacking right away. Imagine with me for a moment someone attacking your faith. That's going to really make you want to listen to them, isn't it? Paul reasoned with the Greeks. He saw their idolatry, but he reasoned with them. He showed himself familiar with their beliefs. Church, you should pay attention to what's going on in culture. It's something that we should do more of rather than just blasting what's wrong with culture. What makes that different between what they believe and what we believe? Why is that practice that they have different than ours? Why do they view marriage differently than we do? 
Why do they raise their children differently than we do in the church? All of those things are important to pay attention to and notice. What I'm not saying is avoid all psychology. What I'm saying is make sure you start with Scripture and then look at what the world teaches and compare the two and be able to adjust in your conversation with other people. Paul also adjusted to the weak. This is more than likely the idea of those who are weak in their understanding of the gospel, not just simply those that are weak in the church. These were those that didn't quite understand all the words that Paul was using, so Paul more than likely explained it at their level. Listen, some of us, we use big words to try and impress people. And sometimes the simplest will do. We don't need to break down Greek words in order to reach people with the gospel. Aren't you grateful for that? God's given you a voice to speak on his behalf. And you can have a regular conversation with coworkers, friends, family, neighbors. You don't have to know the Greek declensions in order to share the gospel. You see, Paul understood that these were weak in the faith and ultimately did not know in 1 Corinthians. He had to build a lot of those brothers and sisters up. But in this context, when he's referring to this, I believe he's referring to the context of the gospel and reaching those that may not have grasped certain things. In fact, back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Paul wasn't trying to be a con man but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul had this balance when he came to sharing the gospel with others. It's been lost today. It's been lost today because many are trying to simplify to the point of changing what Scripture actually says. Listen, church, we don't need to change the word sin to mistake. It's more than that. Sin is legitimately missing the mark of God's perfect standard. We don't need to change what Scripture clearly reveals in order to appease the culture. But if we need to simplify some things, we ought to. Others keep it complicated without bringing it down to the level of the hearers. Here's where it's important to know who you're speaking to. How do I know that this is such a big deal? There are people in this church that you can reach others can't. And God's given you a great opportunity to do so. And others that come along will not be able to have that connection that God has given you with them. I think of people that have a connection with religious leaders in this community that you may not have that connection. 
But I also think of coworkers that you may have that nobody else will have a connection with. All of us, God has placed people around us to reach. And what he's not doing is asking you to try to reach someone else's, if you will, connections. He's asking you to reach your connections. And that means that if you need to adjust in some areas and you're saying, I'm not well-versed in where they come from, do some homework. Study. I love to know that Pastor Rizzo has a connection with a Jewish rabbi here locally. Because they can converse on a level that many of us can't. And all of that comes from understanding contextually where they're coming from. This is a work that we have to do. Church, this is not an automatic. This is real work that we have to put into these things. And we as a church, as a whole, as a leadership need to think through, how do we reach people in our community to where we connect where they're coming from without compromising our faith? You see, Paul's ultimate goal in running the race was to bring his body into subjection. He was going to do whatever it took on his end to not be a hindrance to others coming to Christ. And that's something we all have to think through. What may be hindering other people from coming to Christ because of how I'm living? Maybe if we were more aware of what was said that we don't need to be a part of at work, we might stand out as a good testimony for Christ. Maybe instead of belittling the government, which we many times find incompetent, rightly so, we pray for them and remind others that it's important to respect our leadership and our authority. That doesn't mean I have to agree. There are many kings throughout Scripture that men of God and women of God did not agree with, but they still honored and respected them. So many Christians try to live upright lives without the gospel in focus. Listen, church, this is revolutionary. This is something I had a discussion with my wife over yesterday. When Paul is saying, I'm beating my body in subjection, he's not just saying, I'm just trying to fight sin so I'm faithful to Christ. He's saying, I'm fighting this so that I can reach people with the gospel. This sin is blocking me from being a good resource for God. This desire that I have for what I want and my desires, my selfish desires, my sinful desires, are blocking me from being a good testimony to others with the gospel. It goes beyond just fighting off sin. There's a gospel focus that we miss. You don't fight sin in your life just to improve yourself. You fight because sin is what Christ rescued from and is now going to use in your life because you fought it off to reach someone else with the gospel. You fighting sin shows that Christ worked in your life. You giving in to sin doesn't give anybody a reason to want what you have. Which is why the church that tries to marry with the culture and forgets any distinction that Scripture states clearly is not reaching the world. They are just like them, no different. And their testimony is shot because they give people false hope. Your fight with sin is an opportunity to reach others with the gospel.
What, is it, what do I mean by that? You're going through marital problems, believer. You working through it by the power of the Holy Spirit will give you an opportunity possibly with somebody else that's going through marital problems that's not a believer. And you're looking at it and go, well, don't I have to be perfect? No. That gives you the opportunity to share the gospel and what Jesus has done on your behalf. Here's what we've gone through all these years. We've made it because of God's grace. When I was younger, I did all these things that God was against. I lived a sinful lifestyle. I still struggle with my temper. I still struggle with this addiction. But God has rescued me, and I'm still fighting it right now. Nothing is worse, church, than we, when we willingly give in and we don't care about our testimony. Or the other extreme, when we hide everything and pretend that we're so perfect. The world needs a genuine Christianity. It doesn't need an impressive Christianity that thinks I'm better than you. It needs a sinner knowing that he's now a saint because of Christ. And that all of us are sinners and we need Christ. Ask yourself, believer, what matters most to you when this life ends? That answer will tell you what you're chasing after. You can't tell others, my goal is to hear well done. You're just not willing to give up some things to make sure you can share the gospel with someone else. This blew my mind when I was working through this. That my fight with sin goes beyond myself. And not just the consequences of it affecting others, it affects the gospel ministry itself. Listen, church, if we're not willing to give up some things to share the gospel, maybe Jesus isn't as much of a priority as we say he is. Many of you will fight for others never to harm your children, but will you fight to reach someone with the gospel? And I mean sacrifice. Or is that too much to ask for us? Commenting on Paul's striving in the Christian life, Jerry Hollinger writes the following in his article entitled The Historical Background of Paul's Athletic Illusions. This investigation leads to two notable conclusions regarding the Christian life. First, the dedicated Christian life consists not in a passive letting go and letting God. Instead, it requires an earnest, consistent striving fueled by the grace of God. Second, being disqualified from reward is a real possibility for every believer. Thus, the child of God must be careful to strive according to the rules in order to receive war rewards from the Lord. Church, we ought to make our Heavenly Father proud in the way we live. Just as our children want to make us proud as they're growing up, we as children of God ought to want to please the Father. 
The world doesn't need you to tell them that you're better than them, church. Because you're not. Let's be honest. You're not. I'm not. The only worth we have is found in Christ. That is why we make Him known. And when you're going through those struggles with sin behind the scenes that you're going, I can't do this anymore. I've fought for so long. Remember, it's worth it for Him. When you have to constantly ask for forgiveness, you realize I'm not worthy. He is. You don't have it all together, church. We don't. But we strive to live a holy life pleasing to God. Why is that? Because it pleases God for us to live like Him, and it best communicates the gospel to others. Listen, if you're watching this online and you don't know who Christ is, you don't really care for this gospel message, I want you to know that that is the thing that you're missing the most. He's everything your heart would desire. He's everything you're longing for and missing during this pandemic season. Anything you strive for outside of him will always leave you empty and searching for more. Which is why all the fixes right now that everybody keeps trying to adjust and do will never satisfy. The gospel is simple, but it's profound. Jesus takes our sin if we place our faith in him. Faith that he's died, he was buried and rose again on our behalf. Now listen, church, that part is easy. Sanctification is the hard part. It takes effort living out the Christian life. It takes work, which is where so many of us fail, do we not? It's always worth it when we realize the gospel is not something we ever get over because we want others to have what we have. So church, in conclusion, simple question. Are you consistent? Are you consistent? You see, for Paul, when others were confused or even misunderstood him, he would go out of his way so that the gospel could be preached. He gave up on some of his own rights and things that he would prefer to do differently. But he maintained a consistency to the gospel message. Are you willing to go without some things to reach people with the gospel? When we say we believe Jesus, can we say that without hesitating that we're loyal to him? Can we say that we're loyal to him? Here's another question. Would others question our loyalty to Christ by what they see in our lives? If people are just to take a snapshot of this last week, would our loyalty to Christ shine? Are we looking to better our situations in our relationships, our finances, our struggles, without looking at the bigger picture and how this ties into the gospel? If we're just trying to have life go easier for us, we're missing the whole point of the gospel. 
We're talking a Savior who went to the cross on our behalf, and we want it easy. The gospel was shared with us so that we could share it with someone else. It was never to terminate with you and me. Our children need to know it from us as parents. People around us need to know that this is the hope that we found. Listen, church, we're no better than them, but we possess something greater than they all do, which is Christ himself. Christ is the one that makes us worthy. We are just like all people on this earth. Now maybe we've been giving up, and we've given up in our testimony before others, to the point of compromising some of our beliefs. We aren't living upright lives when it comes to our families. We're not dedicated to our spouse as God would want us to be. Our finances, we're just like the rest of the world. We don't have a gospel-centered view. And we need to think through that. Now maybe you're on the other side of this. You're too reserved in your approach with the gospel. To the point of not sharing because you're afraid of contamination. I don't want them to be a bad influence on me, so I won't say anything about Jesus to them. That's not the right way. There's no excuse to not share the gospel. We're to apply Scripture correctly in not allowing the world to influence us. That's a biblical principle. But separating entirely is completely unsound and unbiblical thinking. We can't reach others with the gospel if we don't care to be around them, church. Let's strive to be disciplined in our gospel witness and not become disqualified, as Paul said. Listen, church, the greatest barrier in our gospel witness can very well be an inconsistent life. 